there's you know there's one group first period that's very like it, this is first period and then i will read the book and i will understand it and then their second period where they have much more energy and it's like this should be a netflix bingeable show and they're like making up like where the episode would break off and what the backstory that we need to know about the the characters it's I mean, the exact same age kids, the exact same, you know, level, the exact same, the only difference is the time of day. And it's just amazing how much different it is between yeah. 7.45 a.m. and next episode of professional development my name is jim mares and i teach high school english in boston massachusetts my name is joseph maffey i teach english and uh yearbook at, at lagrange illinois um joseph you i was really excited to have you on the podcast today because um you know we started this as a conversation about about teaching um to have veteran not not only veteran teachers but marcus and i especially are veteran teachers do most of the episodes and we were sort of eager to have a conversation about teaching that sort of went beyond a lot of what we've been seeing on the news or in the media and things like that. And lo and behold, a real live teacher such as yourself reached out to us and said, hey, I really like this. <laughs> this is a good idea. Um, so first of all, thank you for that. Um, and thank you for being on the show today. It was a really great conversation. Thank you. It's nice to have a forum where people can uh, talk about education. Yeah. So um, we talked, well, we had a pretty wide range of conversation. We talked about how, you know, how you got into teaching, what you've been doing the past, you said 16 years, 16 at the school and uh, for four more. So 20 overall, So 20 overall. Uh, we talked about pandemic teaching. We talked about uh, mask, your mask, recommended status as you move in you said next week moving into mass rec next week um a little bit about critical race theory although it just kind of seems to continue to be the buzzword that we'll see what impact it has um, and mostly just a pretty wide-ranging conversation around how we think about english instruction i enjoyed our conversation about you know weaving in at different points in a student's high school career fiction versus nonfiction, which is something that i think is um, not a conversation we have often enough. Uh, and then lastly, just student culture, building relationships with student culture. So um, did I forget anything? I think it's uh, super refreshing. I think as a teacher, you sometimes just close your door and that's what you hear. Or maybe you just talk to colleagues in your building. I think teaching can be a little insular. So I like this connection about ways that education is happening, hopefully across the country um, as the podcast develops. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. That's exactly what we're trying to do here. And uh, we appreciate it. And we hope you like the episode. Thanks so much. Thank you. Joseph Maffey, welcome to Professional Development. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm excited for this conversation because you were, there was a lot of people who reached out to me um, 
after my my big brush with viral Twitter fame. And uh, that was quite a journey, as you can imagine. But you sent me this really nice email that was essentially like, you know, I you I actually for once in my life listened to a link that someone tweeted. Uh, and you're like a real live teacher listener who said that they liked the show. So that was really cool. And then we've been emailing back and forth a little bit, but I'm really happy that we connect, we connected and you had some time today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, what I think I liked most about that viral moment was that you, it wasn't a complaint really. It was just like, here's what teaching is like, and here's a bunch of people who wanted to have a great experience for kids and it maybe wasn't exactly how we thought it was going to work out. Um, I think so much of right now is people casting blame or like saying that this isn't working out and here's why and here's the villain. And it was just like, this is the thing that happened in schools. And mm-hmm. this was the day in the life of me giving a good experience to kids. And it wasn't, it wasn't perfect. And uh, I think for me, so I was, um, we'll get, maybe we'll get into background later, but I was the, the president of my faculty association the last couple of years. And so there was a lot of, a lot of emails, a lot of complaints and a lot of like, mm-hmm. I just felt like it was probably good to hear like, you know, thank, thanks for tweeting that out. And um, <laughs> just being honest. <laughs> I texted my principal, like when it was getting more than a lot of likes, like more than like what I'd ever seen on Twitter. And I was like, look, this uses a word in it that you may not want associated with the school. Do you want me to take it down? And she was like, no, I don't think it's that big of a deal. And in my head, I was like, I don't think that you (laughs) know that like every journalist is on Twitter. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, it was, it was really stressful kind of in the moment because I didn't really know what to, the impact on us was like, they're just calling our main offices, like camp, like all over. Mm -hmm. They're just like clogging the phones. And I don't have a comment on the bus shortage. Like, what do you want me to say? Like, I wasn't in charge of hiring this bus. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, anyways, enough about me. Tell me a little bit about your, your teaching background and, and uh, what, where, where are you now? And how'd you end up there really? Yeah, so uh, I've been teaching at my current school, um, Lions Township High School in LaGrange, Illinois, uh, for the past 16 years. Uh, English teacher, uh, I now do yearbook and literary magazine. Uh, Before that, I taught four years in Indiana at a couple different high schools. Um, So my 20th year, I think what I like about the conversation on this podcast is that it's just teachers who have experience who can say, here's what it used to be like, and here's what I'm noticing now. Uh, and I think that the veteran teacher voice is not always heard from in a lot of the you know, media or when you're looking at you know, the state of education. Um, that it does, I think you do accumulate some knowledge and experience after a couple decades that maybe you don't have. I mean, I know that after my fifth year teaching, I just want to go back and apologize to my first couple of years of students. It's like, mm-hmm. I didn't know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, so you know, twenty years. Um, I think I kind of got lucky. I moved to Illinois because I was dating uh, a woman who's now my wife. Um, so we kind of did that long distance thing for a little bit, uh, where I would drive up to Chicago uh, every weekend and 
decided to move to Illinois without really a plan. I was like, there's a big city, like I'll find a job. What I didn't realize is that in Indiana, there's only a handful of school districts. So I was working at a district that had like, you know, 13 high schools in it. And you just applied to the district and they just placed you wherever. Uh, and then Illinois has 200 and something different school districts. And so, you know, I'd come home from the library after applying to jobs and be like, all right, I applied to district 204 today. And my wife was like, well, which one? Like, uh, there's, you know, there's one in Naperville. There's the one that I'm currently at. There's another one downstate. It's just, it was hard to even know the state of education in Illinois. And I lucked into this one, which is an awesome school. How long, and how long have you been at your current school? Have you been there the whole time? Yeah, six, yep, 16 years. It's a single district. So it's 4,000 students. Um, just, it's two high schools. So the junior, uh, the juniors and seniors are at one campus and then the freshmen, sophomores are at the other campus. Uh, but it's Got all it. just one big school. Yeah. Got it. And what what's the I'm sorry, what's the proximity to Chicago? We are we're about 10 miles due west. Got it. Yeah. yeah. A friend of mine um works for I came up through Teach for America and I've been working on a lot of the charter school systems. Um I was working in a traditional district school when I started with TFA, was there for six years. But since sort of returned to the classroom, I've been in charter place, uh, charter settings. And a friend of mine works for Noble in Chicago. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've yeah. heard of Noble. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I know Chicago well. It's, uh, I have a lot of, a lot of friends out, out there. Um, what are you teaching now? What's going on in Mr. Maffey's classroom right now? Uh, we're doing the classic Great Gatsby with my juniors. Okay. Just got to the big climax i don't want to ruin anything for the, the listeners out there um there's you know there's one group first period that's very like it, this is first period and then i will read the book and i will understand it and then there's second period where they have much more energy and it's like this should be a netflix bingeable show and they're like making up like where the episode would break off and what the backstory that we need to know about the the characters it's I mean, the exact same age kids, the exact same, you know, level, the exact same, the only difference is the time of day. And it's just amazing how much different it is between yeah. 7 45 AM and 8 30. I also teach first and second period. And I can attest to, I can attest to that. Yeah. I have some thoughts on that. So, okay. You got <laughs> the great Gatsby going on yep. and you're, has he thrown the shirts all over the place yet? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah that did not land as well as I thought it was going to. That was a big, that was a big moment in the actual film. I remember. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I feel like it's very uh, Instagrammable. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what other, so you said you teach in 10th grade. Is it, well, let Let's, me pause. Uh, yeah. No, go ahead. I was just wondering because what, what is the, in your district, you're teaching literature for, uh, you said 10th graders? Uh, juniors. Juniors. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because I teach, I'm wondering kind of what the overall scope and sequence is for fiction versus nonfiction. How, how does your district think about that? Um, I'd say it's pretty blended, maybe. Um, mm -hmm. Like fresh, you know, freshman year, we do a lot of genre studies, uh, a lot of short stories, some novels, some poetry. Mm -hmm. uh, and then sophomore year, we have a thing kind of a kid has a semester with uh, a traditional English teacher. And then they have a semester called interpersonal interpersonal communication IPC class, mm -hmm. uh, just like cultural differences and also speeches. 
And so, you know, it's a different teacher that teaches them that. Um, and then they come back, say most juniors have a year long traditional English class like I have. Um, and we teach World of Wonders by Amy Nizuka Mitadal, uh, which is nonfiction essays, um, Great Gatsby, Citizen by Claudia Rankin, um, and then a play also. Yeah. I would say we're more about doing genres throughout as opposed to kind of saying freshman year has to be this and then you know British you know English has to be this or whatever it's interesting because I think do your kids take any of the AP tests AP literature AP Lang or anything like that my current students and I taught um, the AP lit class for about 10 years before yeah uh, and I mean that was I, that was heavier, you know, it's like crime and punishment and, you know, yeah. Invisible Man and Catch-22. I'd say the the reading, I think you're reading more and reading probably faster, mm-hmm. um, but I don't think you're reading any differently. I think those skills are transferable. Yeah. Well, because I'm teaching AP Lang right now and I love the course. I think it's really good. Um, but I do, A, I sort of miss teaching literature because, I mean, why else do you become an English teacher? <laughs> Um, and also I do find, right, like it can be, it's challenging to sort of compartmentalize nonfiction argumentative essays. And you can probably speak to, I don't know how your district handled this, but it just felt like when Common Core came along, there was just, at least for me, because I was like relatively new in my career, mm-hmm. there was just like, everyone was so excited or just like this huge nonfiction push mm-hmm. almost like an anti-literature not like anti-literature but it just was like we have to get kids reading more nonfiction. and I was just like what like you need <laughs> to get kids reading more like yes. I don't know how did how have you experienced I'm just sort of rambling now but how do you think about like exposing kids to fiction and nonfiction at different times and like have what different things have you tried and what seems to work well yeah I, I actually agree with you the um the whole push to we need to do nonfiction text it seemed to ignore the fact that the students had six other classes where they're probably doing you know history nonfiction or potentially science nonfiction I mean mm-hmm. you can you can read nonfiction other places other than your English class Mm-hmm. So it seemed like the whole reason that a lot of us get into English is the way that people can craft literature or poetry and capture moments as opposed to argue a topic mm-hmm. uh, or look at, you know, not to, not to besmirch nonfiction text, but go ahead. It feels like that per, that the, the push also right now is to, do we need to read the whole book? You know, mm-hmm. do you need to read all of Great Gatsby or can you pull out little selected quotes or do we need to read all of Czar and Love and Techno? Um, by Anthony Mara to understand the whole book or can we just pull out this one story and see what it is mm-hmm. and I feel like there has to be some I mean there has to be some value to reading a full book uh, <laughs> you would yeah, think I, yeah I, I don't know um, I, I don't know who to attribute this to there's something on Twitter where a person wrote how we're constantly in the the ever-present and when you're scrolling through Twitter or Instagram the only thing you ever see is what's happened today Mm-hmm. You never get this deeper dive into even like finding a tweet from five days ago is impossible. Mm-hmm. You know, so like no one's ever focused on one thing for any extended period of time. Mm-hmm. And you know, a nonfiction text 
an article usually is what it, it comes down to. Like you can do it in a class period and you can do your formative and you can do your exit slip, but there has to be some value to studying something for a month and coming and, away with it. You know? I mean, of course I agree with you, but what is the value? Like how would you, if you were to make a sell, how would you sell it? I mean, it's a good question because there's so many books out there. You know, it's like, yeah. does every, you know, I'm not sold on the fact that every kid has to read Gary Gatsby um, right. or they have to read the Odyssey. Like I didn't read the Odyssey till college and I, I'm still a functioning human. Sure. Uh, you know, so I don't know what that one book is or do they need to read a Shakespeare? I think it's more of the, can you stick with something and see how someone builds something over time? That's more important than the, do you understand the plot? Right. Because yeah, I think what's great about Great Gatsby and I don't want to, I don't need to preach to the choir here or spoil the book for anyone that hasn't read it is the I've, way, I've taught it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is the way that like the rich and powerful get away with everything. Right. You know, and you can see that over and over and over again in the book. And then you can apply it to nowadays and to see how a hundred years later, there's still not that much different in American life. Mm-hmm. That would be different than reading a nonfiction essay about whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, agree with that i mean i think that there's a reason right there's a reason why spark notes is not enough for a book right and like in order to figure out why the villain is so corrupt you need the layers and details and complexity that hint at the corruption and foreshadow and you're like oh, this one thing is this, this character flaw is dependent or is formed by this other thing that happened in this other chapter. And I, I agree. I think like there, def, there is value. There is, there has to be value in sticking with a book over time. Um, and it's super complicated to create, even create that piece. Not right. to, I mean, you could read something very similar in theme to a poem and you could, you know, and poems are rich and precise use of language. Mm. And you can study that, but I think you can also study the way that someone actually sat down and wrote 200 page book and the way that they structured it for you to notice those things. Right. And uh, yeah. And what is the intentional development? Why are they, why are they making this reveal right mm-hmm. here? Well, after you've read the whole book, looking back on it, I had a literature professor in college used to say, um, first when when you're reading literature because this is actually i was lucky enough to take a tolkien seminar class in college Mm -hmm. uh, and she would say first you have when uh when the book masters you so when you're just like engrossed in the book and the narrative and you're just like not trying to do any analysis but she would say in this class you have to read it twice you have first so the book can master you and second, so that you can master the book. And I, there's, there's a lot of value in that. That's, I think that I learned, a, I really believe in that and took a lot away from that. And like that, t- I was reading Tolkien and that th- those skills that I developed transfer much more to like any think piece that I can read in the Atlantic. Like I'm bringing, I'm drawing from that experience that I had in my junior year Tolkien seminar in college I don't know yeah we teach uh the Vladimir Nabokov essay I don't know if you good readers and good writers I think is the title uh I, but, I, you know, in the first paragraph or two he says you know what a 
what a reader you would be if you only read six books your whole life. If you could, if you were constantly reading those six books, mm -hmm. as opposed to reading a book and putting it down and then getting the next one. Mm -hmm. um, which mean, again, like school's not built to read a book twice. And I don't think teenagers really want to do that, which is why <laughs> you need people to teach them and say, you know, I, I don't mind ruining books when we're teaching it. You right. know, I'm like, this is about to what this is what's going to happen or can we foreshadow and yeah. kids get a little frustrated. I'm like, well, that's because I'm trying to show you how the author has made choices as opposed to just have a book club with you. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I love talking about English. That's what <laughs> that's part of the problem with this podcast is so far it's uh, mostly English teacher nerds, but it's, you know, we love it. Tell me a little bit in our, some of, I think in our emails and messaging, you've told me a little bit about some of the challenges you've been facing. I think with COVID restrictions, I, I don't necessarily have any context for your district, but I mean, how's it been, what's it been like for you teaching this year? How, what, what's going on? Uh, so let me back up one year. So last year we were fully remote uh, for the first semester. Um, so it was all Zoom. And then we started probably in October, November, we started to have students come back for a couple hours a day, you know, and, and only like A through L and then M through Z would come the next day. And so we could have six feet apart back when we were still understanding the science of the pandemic and, and whatnot and what you could do safely. Uh, so no, like no lunches and kids would come in. So at first it was all remote and then kids would be in class and some kids would be on Zoom and you're teaching this hybrid mode where they couldn't really talk to each other. It's super mm -hmm. strange. Um, then this year we have been fully back in person, but but masked also. And so, and I don't know what Massachusetts is like, because I think that's where you are. Yeah. Uh, yeah, in Illinois, we are getting rid of the mask mandate on Monday next week uh, for the first time. So we'll, I'll see my students' faces for the first time next Monday. <laughs> um, which, and that part is, is really interesting because I, I think we've gotten good at like reading eyes and whether or not kids are, you can kind of, you know, see the, when they lift their eyeballs, yeah, and, you know, they're intrigued by something that's happened in Gatsby, for example, mm -hmm. and you're like, well, what are you thinking? Where in the past you could kind of see the smiles or know mm -hmm. how they're reacting. So I'm excited to see that part. Um, it's been super challenging, uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, I think mostly because people have kind of lost their minds a little bit in the pandemic. Uh, you know, studies have shown that after two after two years, like that people are kind of over it. And I think that's kind of exactly where we are. Um, remember that like 72 hours where people were like, teachers should get paid a million dollars a day. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, there was like I, one John Krasinski good news episode. What happened to that? I, <laughs> <laughs> And I feel like uh, we, I feel like now I, we're all just indoctrinating them. I now know. we shouldn't get paid anything. No, right. Right. We should <laughs> give it back. <laughs> uh, I feel like I, we had, I feel like after 17 years of teaching, and I think you were talking about this in a different podcast, you just start to kind of get into a groove and you, you that you're not spending as much time staying up all night, figuring out like, what am I going to teach and how am I going to teach it? And what's it going to look like on the chalkboard and how am I going to collect it? You just kind of start to internalize some of that. And then we were asked to totally change the way that we taught our instructional modality last year. And now it's like, now change it again, or at least in this district. Um, it's not, we're not really getting back to the sweet spot. I feel kind of like 
reinventing stuff all the time or that's not quite good enough or that's worse somehow um that that's kind of where i'm at <laughs> not yeah. super it's not super cheery but i know i mean i think that is and i i feel like i don't really know where this comes from but to me i mean we had a similar situation i think we started bringing kids back um we didn't do exactly what you did but we had a hybrid setup and we said okay you can come you can come all day to school and this was last this was honestly I think it was like six or eight weeks left in the school I forget but I it was like at the end of the school year we had been teaching on zoom the whole time and then we said you know if you want to come back in you can come back in person um, and just the amount of logistical stress and things that I think were sort of assumed to be automatic like it felt as though like people were saying like oh what's the big deal just like turn your zoom camera on and teach like normally like it's not a like that's not at all how it works and I like in order for it to make sense for both the in-person students and the zoom students I had to stand in a particular spot and I had this little camera that I placed in the front row I this literally my I mm -hmm. placed a camera on a tripod connected to my computer as if it were like eye level with the students and also I had to figure out a microphone setup that would get capture that audio so that I could, whenever I was delivering any type of instructions or direct instruction or feedback or whatever, it felt somewhat natural, but like, or like I could readily communicate both the students who are physically sitting in the room and to the students who are tuning in on zoom as if they were all kind of sitting there in that one spot in the classroom. But that took me like a lot of, that took me multiple days at staying after school, figuring out like troubleshooting tech and that alone, like that very basic step alone, just, I don't know, like it was completely assumed that we would just figure it out. And I, when you were talking about the, uh, when you, you know, when you're a new teacher, you're constantly having to think about all these things, like where do the kids hand in the paper? Like when I walk into the room, what, where do I need to stand? Like that kind of stuff. Everyone, including no matter how veteran of a teacher you are, everyone was figuring that stuff out. And I think that's gone really underappreciated and not stated. Um, and hopefully we're not going back there, but I, I, I don't know. I think it's one of the reasons that so many people are going to leave. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I agree. I, I also think it's an impossible task to do what you were talking about. I think ours was similar. We a little bit different. I had my laptop on a lectern in front of me and then I had an external webcam that was pointed out so that students at home could see that there were other students in the classroom. Mm -hmm. But I think we, you know, we get our rosters and we want to do what's best for all of our students there. And the way that we set up school was it, it that couldn't work. It was either talking directly to the students in front of me or I was talking to a screen to the kids at home. But 
there was no way to make kids with no laptops engage with students that are fully on laptops at any one period of time. It doesn't talking about it doesn't make any sense right now, even. Right. Uh, but we really wanted to try to make that happen. But at some point, I still think I tried to do a good job last year. But if we're being honest, like at some point you were just like, I'm going to treat this a little bit like Jimmy Fallon is doing his show from home. Right. And like, you know, I'm either teach, I'm either talking directly to the camera and I'm, you know, doing my lessons that way. or I'm talking to the studio audience and right. people are just kind of like filming it and watching it later. Yeah. But Jimmy Fallon doesn't do both at the same time. And he also has a, a dozen, at least people working on all the technology to make sure that it can go right. Right. Like that, none of that support was there. Yeah. Do you anticipate, how do you anticipate um, beyond like seeing students' faces and smiling and that kind of thing? Do you anticipate a fight? Have there been fights? Are people worried about mask mandates? Like, how has that gone? Or, or is it like, has it been relatively smooth in terms of people arguing about masks and whether or not uh, it should yeah, be in I think schools? We, I would say two weeks ago is kind of when people reached the tipping point. Um, I think for probably for a variety of reasons and some of it is outside of the school and sometimes it, some of them is actually local stuff. But I think a lot of it is driven by national media discourse because mm-hmm. people would come to our school board meetings with their opinions who wouldn't even live in the district you know like they kind of just go to different districts and say their points and it was like <laughs> like mean girls you let me go here um yeah. so about two weeks ago you know people started expressing more publicly that we should you know get rid of the mask mandate and there was a lawsuit in illinois that named some school districts but not us um you know so then it was like yeah but some schools aren't doing it and you're still doing it and it's it's too bad that we let kind of some of the feelings and politics get involved and less about like what does the information actually tell us because i think generally if i'm looking at people as a whole like generally people wanted to do what was right for everybody um you know like we did the lockdown the flatten the curve and then we you know we were wiping down groceries because we, we thought it was, you know, that's the way that you were going to avoid it. Or, you know, you'd walk across the sidewalk at the beginning of the pandemic because you didn't know if you were going to infect someone outside. You know, I feel like we've let information drive it up until recently when it's become all feelings like this is what I want school to be like again. Um, so we're moving to a mask recommended environment on Monday. So the district is still recommending masks to people. Um, I like the language more, maybe just as an English teacher than mask optional, like mask recommended Uh seems to give some more power to students who are choosing to stay masked. Um, I don't know how that's going to look in my class. I don't know how students are going to treat each other. Um, Uh Some are, some are masked and some aren't, but I'm hopeful that people will do what's best for the community Uh and make decisions that way, but we'll see. What about staff? Is it the same thing? Same thing. Yes. Um, yeah, I, w- I mean, I was very conservative about it. Uh, you know, we sat outside in Chicago winters at friends' houses. Like we didn't go into other people's houses, like mm-hmm. always take out food. Uh, I've been vaxxed and boosted and also had COVID. Like at this point, like, I probably oh, yeah. I'm going to take the, the mask off. Like, yeah. And I told my students, I was like, 
I, this is where I'm at. Unless, you know, if you, if you feel like you want me to put a mask on because either you have a immune compromised person at home or, you know, you're worried about it still, or you just don't like the look of my face, like I'll wear a mask, like just email me and say, I prefer to wear a mask and I'll do that. So I'm kind of telling them where I, the decision I'm going to make, but also letting them have some power to help them be comfortable. And one of my students in class said, that seems super mature. If you're wearing a mask, that kind of means that somebody in this class is not feeling it yet. So maybe we should all wear a mask. Like it, there was a nice like piece of empathy there, recognition that people may not be in the same place. I mean, I think that's, that's such an, because honestly, a lot of the, I've been assuming that it was going to be kind of like an all or nothing scenario for my district. Um, I have the sense, because like, I mean, everyone, I think this is the, one of the things that gets lost. Nobody wants to be wearing a mask. Like everyone wants all the masks to come off. I want all the masks to come off. Um, and I've been sort of, I've been sort of imagining just like the all or nothing scenario where it's like, okay, now you don't have, no one has to wear a mask anymore. I hadn't even thought about the classroom culture implications of like, because in a lot of ways, of course, we know like your classroom can be a microcosm of society. And now all of a sudden on the teacher level, you're going to be dealing with the mask politics of your own students. Right. <laughs> Man, good for your students who, are, who, who made that comment to say, well, maybe we should all do it if one person wants to do it. And I don't know that they will, but it was nice to have somebody raise that point. Not a person that I necessarily thought would bring that out. Yeah. Yeah. Man. All the things that we didn't know we were going to deal with. I know. It just make sure that all your critical race theory lesson plans are posted so that we can <laughs> review them. Right. Yeah. On top of all that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> has, your, has, has there been any of that at your school or not really? I would say not really as, um, no, there have been some policy decisions and then it was masking. Uh -huh. It probably will be the next thing that people come to school board meetings about. Yeah. Um, I assume just because next month we're going to start, you know, a book that deals pretty explicitly with race. Yeah. Um, what book is it? Uh, Citizen by Claudia Rankine. Okay. Um, won the National Poetry Prize. Yeah. You know, so. I, I haven't read it. I've heard about it, but I sure. teach. Um, I teach both this year. We, we didn't, we had to, we didn't work it in, but I have, I usually teach or try to teach fire next time by James mm -hmm. Baldwin. And then, cause it's AP Lang, it's a collection of nonfiction essays. Um, yeah. The fire this time by Jesmyn Ward is literally titled like a new generation talks about race. And it's just like all essays about race <laughs> in the United States um so yeah i just i don't know do you feel like um i know that some of my coworkers are a little nervous about teaching this book and mm. maybe some of your coworkers are nervous about teaching that book particularly right now when critical race theory which these are things are not even part of that these are just books that right talk about race in america um i feel like as straight white men 
may have, I'm not going to get as much pushback. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you feel the same way. Like, I feel like some of my privilege is being able to talk about those things totally. and being able to say like, this is what this author's purpose is. And we can evaluate that purpose. And here's how they do that. As opposed to getting personally attacked for teaching the book. Maybe I'm rosy colored glasses on that. but I mean, I think that's true. I think, I think a lot depends. Like, the vast majority of my students are students of color. So our, like my students' parents expect us to be Mm. teaching a lot about race and saying like, actually we aren't doing a good enough job of teaching black history in the United States. So for me, the conversation now in my, in my environment has, it's, it's a lot different. Um, when I was, I started teaching in Arkansas and I, yeah, I don't know. Like I felt like I, even, even in a pretty conservative town or at least a town that had a lot of like pretty vocal conservative community members, I still feel like I could have pretty much taught whatever I, whatever I wanted. Um, Cause I feel like, I don't know if it's just being like, having the privilege that I have or just also being an English teacher like I wonder about the extent to which like people just sort of expect you to be able to teach this stuff in an English class Hmm. um it's an interesting question what I mean let me throw it back to you do you do you think that's a thing that allows you to teach whatever you want (laughs) (laughs) I do I do think that I don't uh have as many misapprehensions as some other people Mm-hmm. that I teach with who are expressing some concerns about what they're going to hear. And maybe that's just because of the, the focus on CRT now. Yeah, but I yeah. would say also like, I feel like it's my part of my role to point out how Fitzgerald, you know, is, is talking about his black characters mm-hmm. or the way that he, you know, describes Meyer Wolfsheim um, mm-hmm. in Gatsby. Like I do feel like maybe at the beginning when I was, didn't have as much experience, I would just kind of avoid some of that stuff. Or I'd be like, no, that, that's not really plot driven. That's the description that I'm not comfortable with talking about. Mm-hmm. Where now I feel like it, I do need to bring it up and talk about the way that Fitzgerald is shaped by his culture. And what does that mean? And the way that people are making arguments about what it's what their experience in American culture is like. I mean, if we're going to talk about American literature, we need to kind of talk about what it means to be an American. Mm-hmm. That's some of that is the warts. Yeah. I, yeah. What would you, or what have you said to your colleagues who are worried about either parent backlash or even student backlash? I'm not too sure, but I mean, how would you approach that conversation with a parent? Uh, I I mean, that's the thing I don't, because I, in 20 years, never really experienced it. Mm -hmm. Um, it's I, I want to be empathetic, but I've also not like I haven't had the experience to know what kind of emails people are getting mm-hmm. about that topic. And I don't know how much of that is because of the way I teach the book, or maybe I'm not engaging with it as much as the other people are, or maybe I'm doing a more nuanced job. I, I don't know if it's because I'm not teaching it as as well or as richly as they are, or if I'm doing it a disservice. Um so, I, I mean, I think it's good that we're having a conversation about it um, as a faculty, but we don't, 
we've talked about you you talk about this all the time we don't have really time to actually talk about ways we don't have enough planning periods right actually planning right or to engage in like the the purpose of this podcast is to have conversations that are exploratory and um you don't necessarily end up where you thought you were going to end up or something and to me that's the definition of rigor (laughs) um and yeah i think it's a really interesting question that you pose essentially like does your privilege as a straight white male english teacher sort of grant you access or grant you leeway to teach more to hit on more controversial topics, mm-hmm. including race or maybe sexuality or religion. Um, and there's that, certainly an irony there because you would expect that that group not expect us to be more like Tom and Great Gatsby and you know mm-hmm. protect the power we have and not really bring up those things. Yeah, I mean, I certainly think, I certainly think that it does exist. I mean, I. I I certainly think that just like as a man in general, especially with high school students, um, a lot of it's, it's kids just easier sometimes to control the classroom because um, not control. I don't really like that word, but like manage the classroom, manage the classroom because yeah, I have and have had a lot of like colleagues who are women who are extraordinarily skilled teachers and students say things to them that they would never, they would never say to me, even though I'm not like, I'm not like that big of, of a guy or anything like that. But um, yeah, it's a, it's an important question. And I think that, you know, all this focus on uh, standards and everything that we were bringing up earlier or, you know, skills, what it, it you know it says like you need to teach this one thing and it, it ignores all the personality that someone has in the classroom mm-hmm. like the way that someone can do something personality the way that they can control a classroom or the way that they can you know let classroom be loose and also rigorous mm-hmm. the way that you can teach things it removes the total personality of the teacher because mm-hmm. uh, you know, i well my own little rant i you know i feel like dead poet society ruined you, you kind of have to be like, that's the Robin Williams. Like you have to be that English teacher and I'm not, I'm not going to stand up. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to talk for more than like five minutes at a time to my students. Like, it's like, here's what we're working on, work on it. Let's bring it back. Let's talk about it. Uh, I'm not going to have like stand on desks and be the person, be the idol in front of the classroom. Like that's not my persona. No. Uh, like we all have these, but you can be just as effective as the Robin Williams character and not be that person. You can be just as effective and have a totally different presence in the classroom. Right. Right. And I, I think that's, yeah, the tendency to want, I mean, the tenant, like the savior complex within education is so poisonous to me. Yes. Um, and it's like very, it, you know, all right. On the one hand, you want to get into teaching because you have certain most likely, I would hope, you have certain moral convictions, right? Like no one goes into teaching because, well, we can talk about money or all that kind of stuff. But like 
you decide to be a teacher because you believe that there's a lot of intangible things that are important. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you have influence on students. It's a, it's a, it's an incredible responsibility. Like all of the sort of more underlying moral framework for what we think teaching is a lot of that is why you go into teaching, but it's also true. Yeah. You can't, like that's something to me that just that has to happen over time just like reading a book to bring it full circle like it has to like there's a rhythm to it and it's not just you standing up convincing students to change their change to change their erroneous ways in one heartfelt speech at the end of the movie right like that's not how it works which unfortunately i think a lot of people kind of mm-hmm. either think that's how it works who aren't in education or there is, I, I, I know people who sort of have had a bit of a savior complex and deserve, I think, rightfully to be challenged and have been receptive to that kind of stuff mm-hmm. uh, in those conversations. I would correct something a little bit. I didn't actually realize that until my first year teaching. Like, that's the reason I was getting into teaching. Mm. You know, I, I got into teaching because I love the books and the content. And then all of a sudden I was like sitting around with my friends who were artists or were working for city government. And, you know, we'd be at a bar on a weekend or something like that. And then I'd be like, I'm in charge of a hundred kids. Like, mm-hmm. you, you know, like you're doing this job and I'm sure it's important, but it's like the, the overwhelming weight of responsibility as a 22 year old, mm-hmm. like was not something I was prepared for. Um, and it maybe is one of the reasons that people leave education. Cause I think mm-hmm. we don't really talk about, the profound, profound influence that you have on a student. Like it's, you know, if you're teaching juniors then it's like one seventeenth of their, their life that you, you're in charge of, like you talk to them more than their parents, 180 days a year. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, I was not prepared for that. Like, I was like, I'm, I'm going to teach books and I love books. Yeah. And it wasn't until I think as I got more comfortable being up revealing some of my personality in the classroom, that I became more comfortable and like making those connections with students that I realized that's really, that's where the, that's the gravy. Yeah. What are some of the, what are some of the favorite, your favorite things that you're doing either this year or some routines that you've had to um, flesh out or establish those relationships? I don't know your favorite mm-hmm. things that you do in a classroom. That's like really meaningful to you beyond just like, Oh, this improved my exit ticket score. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the stuff that's not on the the standards. Right. Um, I guess I'll I'll answer two two ways. There, one is uh, there's a great collection uh, of poetry by Kevin Young called "The Hungry Ear," and it's uh, just a collection of poems about food. And um, at the beginning of November, so you've gotten to know these students a little bit. Mm-hmm. What I do is I, I read their food aura and I give them a poem. And the day before Thanksgiving break, um, they, you know, they can bring in food. Uh, they don't have to, um, but they have to get up in front of the class and just read their food poem, you know, and I don't explain why they got that poem. Um, but the, the kids love that, that day. Um, Cause they want to hear what everybody else is reading mm. or why, you know, why did this one get a poem about barbecue sauce? And what does it mean that I got the one about cookies, you know? Yeah, um, it's just like a celebrate. Like kids are just enjoying reading poetry, and they 
it's about food like it's not that deep there are some deep poems in there but like we don't dig into them you know it's just like we're gonna appreciate 30 yeah. um so like that day um but i think what i like most about teaching is making those connections with students and so i just have a, a public instagram page where mm -hmm. every day um so in like 2015 maybe one of my students was like you should have got instagram and i was like I, that's i don't what's the point like i don't know what that means <laughs> so she made me take a selfie with her uh, in class and i was like okay what am i supposed to do with this she was like you know just post things that you like um so every day since then i've posted one positive moment from my day um and i don't talk about it like it's really just for me to go back and be like okay that was that was a great month or that was a great year um but students inevitably find my page um and they you know they start following me because it's public um and i'm like i won't follow you back like if you graduate you know then i'll follow you um but that connection like i've had students are in their 30s with kids that i'm connected to on instagram now and i see their lives um or you know we'll stay connected or i'll see you know kid got published in a magazine and it's like hey congratulations i think it allows them to see me as a person and i post pictures about like the basketball game i'm at but also the book i'm reading this weekend like them seeing what it's like to have a responsible social media presence mm. and celebrating the positive moments. I think, I don't know. I think it's my favorite part. It's a way to like build school culture and classroom community without being the guy in front of the class, like rah, rah. Right. One Instagram post a day. Yeah. I know that's it's, a real, not just, that's really, <laughs> that's real commitment. I Sometimes love that. it's really hard to find positive things. Like we, we yeah. just went through a pandemic and it was like, these flowers are great. This is the only bright part of the day. Or mm. this this student killed it today. We're gonna take a picture together. That's a good, that's a good because I've been coming like I've been like extremely disillusioned with uh all types of and the impact, especially of social media. Mm -hmm. So that's a good. I might, I might start doing something. I might steal that from you. I have a. It's I have nice a, because it's only for me. Like it's, it's social media, but only if, like if, if all of a sudden I ended up tomorrow with zero followers, which would be the goal. Yeah. I would still do it because it's like <laughs> only me capturing. It forces me to remain positive. Yeah. No, I like that a lot. That's. And it's a post. It's a photo post, not like on the stories. Yeah. No memes. No memes. No. 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 <laughs> Man, I love that idea. Maybe that'll maybe that'll inspire me to because my wife is always like she's the one who takes all the, the photos and everything. And my camera roll is just like screenshots of really <laughs> bad tweets that I am sending on my friends. So uh, probably I should have a better approach to social media. Um, well, before we close out, who is a teacher who has impacted you? uh either a teacher that you've had when you were younger or a colleague could be anything really but when we're interviewing people we like to just ask like you know this is a podcast about teaching and who is a teacher who really had a profound impact on you uh the, i think i would say it's <clears throat> a good question i would say probably the one that 
I think he probably knows also, and sadly he passed away a couple of years ago, uh, was Mr. Martin Tierney, uh, who was my English teacher in high school. And in high school, I don't know if you're the same way, but I was, I was not really the academic. Um, I went to school mostly to play sports. Uh, I was, you know, played three sports in high school and then, uh, you know, I'd go to work at Target and then mostly I would go to school and like kind of sleep in the back. And he was an English teacher and he had this great voice that would like put you to sleep. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I do feel that, but I, I loved the way that he taught. Um, and I, I actually regret not engaging as much as I wish I would have. And I did have him for two years. Um, and just the way that he would, he was so passionate about, I mean, he would have hated all the standards right now, but like, he would be like, we're going to watch this clip from picture of Dorian Gray. And I'm going to teach you about the way that cinematographers think through a shot, or I'm going to, you know, act out part of Macbeth. Or you're going to memorize the speech Macbeth. And here's why it's important to you and why you remember it, you know, today, even um, just like his passion for literature and the way that he was willing to talk about how much he liked books and words and language and the way that he would just tell about his life um i think stuck with me more than i was realizing because at the time i was a math person and you know i was well, my, i went to indiana university and was a math major for the first couple of years and then switched and i was like i don't want to teach this no offense to math teachers out there i want to teach the same problem like over and over and over again for the next 40 years like i want to be able to teach a book and then when i want to teach a different book or a different poem like i can switch it up and students who react one way one year will all of a sudden react a different way the next year like you can never really plan for their the student response or how you're going to teach something or how you're engaged with something differently um so just the way that he carried himself and loved his class and loved his students even if they were sleeping in the back was hopefully what i try to do in my class now that's great I'm sure you're on your way if you're not there already. <laughs> I try. We just try to get a little better every day. All right. Uh, Mr. Maffey, thank you so much for coming on. This is really exciting to start interviewing some real live teachers about their work. Uh, I really appreciate you making the time. I appreciate it. Thanks.